Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Power of your victory over sin and death. We beseech you in this hour to bless the preaching of your word. Lord, in this moment, make it a word of power and a word of peace. A word of power to convert those who are not yet yours. And a word of peace to conform those who are yours to the very likeness of Jesus Christ. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Amen. Who doesn't like a thrilling end to a really good, very engaging story? This is why we read novels. I just finished a novel. I think it was Friday night, and I stayed up extra late because I wanted to get to the end. This is why we watch films with Amy on our date night last week. We went to the movies, and we want to see what happens in that final scene. Who doesn't like the thrilling end to a very engaging and involving story? I suppose the opposite of that, I suppose the opposite of that, when's the last time you did this? You turn on a TV show or you pick something on Netflix just because you're bored and wasting time and you watch it for about six minutes, maybe seven or eight, and you realize, I don't care about any of these characters, I don't care about anything they're doing, and I don't care what happens next, and you're just going to turn it off. I suppose the opposite of that is if you're on the couch watching something on television and you're glued to it and your spouse or your roommate comes in and you say, shh, leave me alone. I have to see what happens next. The storyline of the Bible is supposed to give us a living hope in the glorious conclusion of the story, which is a dramatic culmination of a very engaging storyline. At the start, God makes the world, he makes the sun in the sky and the stars in outer space. And if you read Genesis 1, it's almost as, it's almost as if God just spoke a word, spoke a word and did all this. But God paused and consulted with himself when he made the pinnacle of creation, which is us. And from that spot on the pinnacle, we followed a serpent and we fell for his lie. And now we struggle with the curse, sin and death, struggle and hardship and thorns and blood and sorrow. And we just can't win. And throughout the storyline, there are these whispers and promises and even prophecies of a coming dread champion, a coming warrior, a coming hero who will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And these promises come to pass in the life of Jesus Christ, his birth. We put together this Advent series that we're beginning next week. We, you all have a, a booklet where we follow some of those prophecies, the birth of Jesus, his life. And then in dying on the cross, Jesus saves us from the consequences of everlasting death through his resurrection from the grave. 
And then he ascends back to heaven again, and his last word to us is, wait, I will come back soon. So what happens next in this storyline? What happens next is the promise culmination that Jesus will return, not as a baby in a manger, but as a dread warrior who will reap judgment upon the earth. He'll ride a war horse and he'll carry a sword, not merely as a decorative ornament, but it will be unsheathed and Satan and all evil will be judged and condemned. And then a new heaven and a new earth will commence. The very first Christian sermon was in Acts chapter two. And in the very first Christian sermon, the apostles began saying, we are in the last days and we are waiting for the fulfillment of Christ's return. The resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus put the church on notice that the clock is ticking down. We're in the last days. We're waiting for what happens next, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we take these prophecies seriously. We take the prophecies of his first coming seriously because we look back and we see them fulfilled. Many of those prophecies will be in that Advent book, that, that Fall on Your Knees Advent book that we distributed to you all. And I take the prophecies of his second coming, or I should say we take the prophecies of his second coming just as seriously. Take them just as literally. You end up with an understanding of end times events. Here I'm going to have to flip into sort of inside church language. You end up with a view of end times events that is premillennial. That's where I'm at. That's where we're at as in our teaching position as a church, where there's the promise that all of these Old Testament prophecies to Israel will literally be fulfilled when Jesus reigns from the throne in Jerusalem. He fulfilled his prophecies literally in his first coming. We would expect nothing different in his second coming. Jesus himself, when he quotes from Daniel 9, from Daniel 7, from Isaiah, when Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, he doesn't sort of symbolize and allegorize those texts. He takes them literally. So we take that with Romans 11, promising that God's going to bring to pass all of his Old Testament promises to Israel, the prophecies of Zechariah 12 and 14, Isaiah 2, lots of other places, and that's where we, that's where we end up. I, uh, I'm not just saying this to be nice. Um, I have uh, respect and admiration for many Bible teachers who hold a different point of view on end times events than I myself hold. But our, our church has a particular teaching position that we approach things from, and that's what I'm going to present to you this morning. When I try to answer the question, what happens next? What happens next. When God returns, like when he comes, our glorious king, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. When in the future God returns and he fulfills his promises and he fulfills his covenants, this is what will happen. The return of Christ, the return of Christ, maybe you've come across this word if you've, if you've like a lot of curious Christians, you've been looking up like what, what's, what are the end times events. The return of Christ is called the parousia is the Greek word, the parousia, which simply means the, it could be translated arrival 
or it could be translated return, or it could be translated coming. And the parousia, or the return of Christ, we believe that it can happen imminently at any moment in the twinkling of an eye. But we also believe that the return of Christ is a whole process of events that will take days and weeks and months and even years to come to pass. So the day of his return, we could talk about that it's imminent and it'll be in a split second, but the day, the day of the Lord, pretty much every interpreter of scripture understands, no matter where you end up on end times events, you, you, you all agree that the day of the Lord includes a lot of events that are going to take longer than one 24-hour day. So what's a basic order of events? What happens next? All I did for the sermon notes today is I put seven scriptures that we'll go through. We'll read, uh, if not all of them, hopefully the majority of them. And each of those seven represents one uh, event. There are other events that I could put in there, but you're all going to have to eat lunch at some point in time, so I can't put in every event that I could possibly put in. So I landed on seven. What's the very next event that we expect? The first scripture that I want you to turn to is 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you want to uh, label the event that this describes, you could write the word rapture, R-A-P-T-U-R-E, the rapture. The first place we'll turn together is 1 Thessalonians 4. The word rapture means to be snatched up, to be taken up, to be rep, uh, rescued, to be grabbed away from a troubling situation. And the timing of the rapture, or even if one believes that the rapture is actually going to be a literal physical event, or if it's just a, sort of a, a symbolic thing that represents something that doesn't actually happen literally on the earth. This is a conclusion you have to come to by carefully reading scripture. You, you, you have to compare 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and Matthew 24 and, and Daniel 9 and all these different texts to come out to a conclusion. And I'm probably this morning just sort of giving you the conclusions without giving you all of the reasoning leading up to them because we got to got to figure out how much we can share in one lesson or one sermon. So I want to show you the first thing, the next event that I think that's on the prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. If you've uh, been confused about end times, and so you've decided, I'm just going to stay uninformed about it, you're kind of disobeying the word of God right here. He wants you to be informed. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, <clears throat> who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together, will be raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, it says in verse 19, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. I locate that trumpet as the same trumpet that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. And these two texts together, along with a cluster of other texts from 1 Thess, 2 Thess, and the Old Testament, lead me to the conclusion that what, what the church is waiting for is to be rescued, to be raptured by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns for us, we who are alive will be caught up. Those who are already dead in Christ will be raised and we'll all meet together and we will always be with the Lord. And our fellowship with Jesus will begin right then. I think at, uh, I think at that point in time, this isn't one of the events on the, on the seven there, but I think at that point in time, since it's believers who are with Jesus, at that point in time or shortly thereafter, we will experience what's called the Bema seat judgment, the B-E-M-A seat judgment, which is talked about in 1 Corinthians 3. It's not a judgment of unbelievers. The Bema seat judgment is a judgment of reward to believers. This is what will happen then. That's in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15. I think it's also mentioned in Romans 14, verse 10. So, because we'll be raptured, the church, as it's constituted today, won't be present on the earth for our second event, which is in Revelation 6 through Revelation 16. And that's the seven-year tribulation. The tribulation. The seven-year tribulation. That's the second event. The rapture of the church rescues the church from experiencing that seven-year tribulation. Uh, this is in Revelation 6 through 16. It, there's also a lot of places in the Old Testament that predict it, but Revelation 6 through 16 dramatically shows what it is. This is the, if you've read the book of Revelation, this is the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls that pour out God's wrath upon the earth. Look at uh, Revelation 6. Uh, let's just... Revelation 6, let's read uh, uh, from verse 7. The, these are the seven seals, and I'm just picking it up on the fourth seal because we can't read the whole thing. But Revelation 6, starting in verse 7, it says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And then he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were given each a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers would be complete who were killed as they themselves had been. And then he opened the sixth seal and look and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called out to the mountains and the rocks, oh, fall on us and so hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And this, beloved, is the fourth, fifth, and sixth seal, and it progresses from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls of judgment. This is a horrific time on the face of the earth. The tribulation is seven years, have this quaint saying from the Old Testament, a time, times, and half a time. That means three and a half. A time, times, that's two, and a half a time. And it says that there's a time, times, and half a time, and then the midpoint of the tribulation, and then another time, times, and half a time. So this seven-year tribulation, this midpoint is called the abomination of desolation. That's prophesied in, in Daniel chapter 9 and in Daniel chapter 11. But all of this is, is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And it, it, what's very apparent is that God is troubling and judging and purging and preparing Jacob or Israel for the final fulfillment and blessing of all that he's going to do. But there's this time of tribulation and preparation first, the time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation ends at what will be our third event, and that's in Revelation 16, and you could call that the Battle of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon. If you take a tour of Israel, they will take you to the Valley of Megiddo, or what it's currently located as, the final battle, the Battle of Armageddon. When all this, all this, all this happens in the tribulation, and then finally, the Battle of Armageddon is sort of the, the conclusion of it, where all the armies and, and everyone's gathered together, and what happens at the Battle of Armageddon which was our third event in Revelation 16, verse 16, the battle of Armageddon is conclusively decided by what we'll call our fourth event, which is simply the return of Christ, the return of Christ. And you'll see that in Revelation, from Revelation 16 all the way through Revelation 19. So third event is Armageddon, the fourth is the return of Christ, or the second coming of Christ. Uh, this, this is narrated throughout 16, 17, 18, and 19, but just look at how it's said in 19 verse, uh, look at how it says in Revelation 19 verse 11. In Revelation 19 verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe, 
and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. For I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who's in his presence and, and had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gored upon their flesh. Tribulation ends with the battle of Armageddon, which ends with the triumph of the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ. And that's our fourth event. The reason Jesus Christ returns is to judge and rule. The reason Jesus Christ returns is to judge and to rule. And that gives us our fifth and sixth event. The fifth event located in Matthew 25 is the judgment of of the sheep and the goats. The fifth event located in Matthew 25 is the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And after his judgment, then commences his rule. And so the sixth event is the, millennial, the millennium or the millennial rule of Jesus Christ in Revelation 20. So the fifth event is the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. The sixth is the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ. First look at this judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. These verses are often quoted about clothing the naked and visiting the prisoner. In, in context, in the Olivet Discourse, we take these verses to mean one's conduct during the tribulation is what sets up that judgment for those who may or may not enter the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Matthew 25, just to take a sample of it, it says there in verse 31, Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So see, that's a different coming, I take, than the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the final second coming of Christ that sets up this judgment. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? 
And when do we not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This judgment of the sheep and the goats at, at the second coming of Christ, at the outset of the millennium, then rolls into the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. From Jerusalem, it, Revelation 20 describes the millennium, and it's the fulfillment of all of the promises to Israel. It's a very unique time because we, the saints, we return with Jesus, and it, it actually says there that we help him rule in the millennium. We help administrate the, his glorious reign on the earth. How, how fantastic is that going to be? The millennium is the fulfillment of Zechariah 14, Isaiah 2. It's spoken of in Revelation 20. And it says that all the nations will stream into Jerusalem to experience the blessings of King Jesus. Then at the conclusion of the millennium, at the conclusion of the millennium, we find the great white throne judgment. There are several judgments. At the conclusion of the millennium, we find the great white throne judgment end of Revelation 20, where Satan will be thrown, uh, all, the unsaved dead will be raised, and that sets up the seventh and final event, which is the, the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth, our final state. That's in Revelation 21. I'm reading from Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this text, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away the new heaven and the new earth when we'll dwell with the Lord. So I realized I, I flew through these seven events and I didn't back up the reasoning of why I place each one where it is. At, at, at a minimum, I, I gave you on the RBC website, I think I linked to it with the RBC Facebook and Twitter, like a couple of resources, a fine book edited by um, Dr. Richard Mayhew from Master Seminary, who's, who's been here and he, he uh, spoke here years ago, uh, a book with uh, chapters on all these different events, as well as one of my favorite, like one volume books is by a teacher named Benoit, B-E-N-W-A-R-E, and he taught this stuff at Moody for years and years, and he has one book that kind of covers, covers all of it, and uh, those are up on the website if you want to get those and kind of study further. But as far as what happens next, let's pivot from seven events uh, to one. What happens next, in one word, is Jesus. At the rapture, Jesus returns for his church to rescue them from the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns to settle the score at the battle of Armageddon. At the judgment of the sheep and the goats, Jesus sits and judges. In the millennial reign of Jesus, it is Jesus to whom the nations stream in to see the blessings of the kingdom of God. In a word, what happens next is Jesus. 
Jesus, who in the days of his flesh was persecuted and mocked and crucified, shall rule and reign and crush his enemies. This is for the consolation of the church because we love Jesus right now and in this world we lose because we are persecuted and our enemies seem to triumph over us. But Jesus is coming back and those who are opposing Jesus now appear to be winning but only now for a vapor, for an instant, because when Jesus returns, they shall be terrified and their end will be awful. Jesus is coming to judge. And we long to see the wrongs made right and we long to see righteousness established in justice. But it even it says that he'll wipe every tear from our eye. But this is the point. It's not just that every tear is going to be wiped from our eye. It's not just that every right is going to be wronged. It is that Jesus is going to be the one to wipe every tear from our eye. And it is Jesus who will right every wrong. Our Savior who was condemned between two thieves will sit on a throne as judge of the world. Our Savior who bled and had his flesh split into pieces will judge the world. This is what we're waiting for. Even in, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Philippians 3, it's one of those little details that escapes you. But in Philippians 3, Paul says, uh, we, are waiting for, we are waiting for Jesus and the transformation of our body, he says. But the way the sentence comes together, it's like most of us, we're like, oh, I can't wait for this body to get transformed. The way that Paul says it in, in the, the last verse in Philippians 3 to the first verse in Philippians 4, he says, yeah, my body's gonna be transformed because Jesus is going to come for me. We're waiting more than just from relief from these bodily aches. We're waiting for Jesus. This is our hope. After all, if someone saved your life, how eager would you be to meet him? You know, my little brother's life uh, got dramatically saved. When we were little, we lived in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we moved here from Southern California where it's warm, but before that we lived in Fort Lauderdale where it's warm. And now I live here with you bums, but I'm not gonna get into that. Uh, we lived in Fort Lauderdale, and like a lot of homes in Fort Lauderdale, uh, there was a little, like a little canal going through our backyard. Everybody on our street had one, and every now and then there'd be a gator in there. My brother was probably two. I don't know how it happened. He toddled out the back kitchen door, which should have been locked, across the backyard, through the fence, which should have been locked, and he fell into the canal. And he stayed in there way too long. We had uh, a neighbor who was a paramedic who was home from his shift. And when he pulled my little brother out of the canal, I, you know, it was, my little brother wasn't dead, but he was almost dead. He was very blue. And our next door neighbor, this paramedic, he pulled him out and he, you know, worked on him and had him expel the water and he saved his life. How do you guess we treated 
that next door neighbor for the rest of our time on that little street. How do you think we felt about that guy? Man, we wanted to thank him, wanted to kiss him, wanted to hug him, wanted to buy him stuff. We're waiting for Jesus. And one of the things that we're promised is a glorified body. But I don't, know, I don't know how to tell you this without seeming unsympathetic. As much as we pray for healing and as much as cancer is something we are afraid of, if the reason you're waiting for a glorified body is just to get rid of the cancer, this is not a Christian sentiment. The reason that we want a glorified body is so that we have a throat that can sing the praises of Jesus forever. The reason we want a glorified body is so that we have hands that can embrace Jesus forever. It is Jesus that we're waiting for. It's Jesus that we're looking for. We get a glorified body so that we can do that. That's really the only reason that the glorified body is not just a ghost. It's because we need a throat to sing his praises. We actually, need, we actually need teeth to eat the marriage supper of the lamb with him because, because we, we will be with the Lord. And the great promise is the dwelling of God will be with his people and they will be with him forever in love. This is what we're waiting for. This table belongs to all of those who take this now by faith because they have a steady assurance that the day is coming soon when we'll take this by sight with Jesus himself. This is what we wait for, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hear your children as they pray. And as you hear us, transform us within. Where there's confusion and doubt, give us confidence and faith and trust where there are affections that are moving in a dozen directions, give us a single eye and one aim to know you, to love you, to see you, to worship you, to trust you. Lord Jesus, as we take this now by faith, oh, help us to anticipate a day soon coming when we'll take by sight in your very presence. Lord Jesus, bless your people as they remember you and worship you. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.